to Tea Tonic and Toxin, a book club and podcast for anyone who wants to explore the best mysteries and thrillers ever written. I'm your host, Sarah Harrison. And I'm your host, Carolyn Daughters. Pour yourself a cup of tea, a gin and tonic, but not a toxin, and join us on a journey through 19th and 20th century mysteries and thrillers, every one of them a game changer. Helen. Sarah, I'm so excited today. We have an interview. I know. I'm so excited too. We have some special episodes for you guys today. Yes, yes. So today we're going to interview Karen Pierce. She is a detective fiction devotee, food lover, and Agatha Christie superfan who has attended and volunteered at several Anthony. Ooh. I should have asked how to pronounce this. Butcher, Boucher, uh, Memorial World Mystery Conventions and has t- has taken pilgrimages to Torquay and Greenway House, Christie's hometown and home. Pierce, uh, Karen Pierce lives in Toronto, Canada, and she has written this amazing book uh, that we have been pouring through over recent days. It is called Recipes for Murder, 66 Dishes that Celebrate the Mysteries of Agatha Christie. It was released in August, so it's it's very recent. And this book, uh, I'm going to read a little summary here. Poisons, knives, and bullets riddle the stories of Agatha Christie, but so does food, which she uses to invoke settings, to develop characters, and of course, to commit murder. This To Die For cookbook offers recipes written by the author for one accessible, easy-to-follow dish or drink for each of Christie's 66 mysteries. Recipes include fish and chips at the Seven Dials Club, literary lunch and meringues, oysters Rockefeller on the Orient Express, sixpence blackbird pie, orange marmalade from Gossington Hall, and more. Along the way, you'll learn how to make an exquisite omelet, how to roast a leg of lamb properly, and how to serve perfectly timed steak frites. Framing these dishes are insightful essays and headnotes that detail the history of the recipes, their context in Christie's life and times, and the roles they play in the source works. Based on extensive research and investigation, all dishes appear traditional to their respective eras. So, uh, steak frites for 1923, but marinated, uh, I'm sorry, steak fried for 1923, but marinated and grilled for 1964. Completing the collection, thematic menus assemble recipes for a Halloween murder mystery gathering, a Christie for Christmas, a book club buffet, and other occasions, making it a filling tribute to the grand dame of detective fiction. Welcome, Karen. Welcome, We're so Karen. excited to talk to you about this book. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you two about it. Mm-hmm. I actually have a, a personal obsession with historical and themed recipes. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, Well, yes! that's your book then. <laughs> I know, it really is. Um, I and I'm, to say something. Can I just say something course. quickly about the steaks? Yeah. yeah. The first steak in Murder on the Links is fried in eight tablespoons of butter. Yum. Ooh. <laughs> by the 40s uh-huh. it's grilled like on a flat grill mm-hmm. in three tablespoons of butter mm-hmm. and in the 70s or the 60s it's marinated and thrown on a barbecue outdoor grill oh, no butter butter free <laughs> butter free so interesting huh it is yeah i'm really excited about well and you bring up a, a really cool aspect 
that you did in the book, which was divided up kind of by decade. And Christie's yeah, writing really changes. spans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It really changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, what, what prompted you to write this book? You know, one day, honestly, I've always wanted to write a book and I, I really haven't been able to get the whole puzzle mystery thing down. And anyway, one day I'm just surfing the net and I'm wondering, I think I'm going to buy myself the Agatha Christie cookbook. (laughs) And I can't find it. It doesn't exist. So then I thought, well, if it did exist, what would it look like? And then I just started doodling and spreadsheeting and thinking Mm and yeah. I love that you were looking for it. So it's changed a lot. I mean, it was a 10-year project project that I just did in bits and pieces. It wasn't like I was thinking I'm going to sell this book. Mm -hmm. It was like, this is what an Agatha Christie cookbook should look like. That's incredible. So, yeah, like the first recipe changed about eight or nine times Mm -hmm. through through things. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. So it went through a lot of iteration, iteration, yeah, 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 and um, yeah, and this is what this is what we have, which I'm really proud of, and think worked in the end worked really well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very cool, and it's fascinating that you know you thought of it in ten years, and ten years later, still nobody had made it. It was just waiting (laughs) for you. That's everybody saying to me when I tell them what this great idea I've had is like, they're like, don't tell anyone. Yeah. So you have 66 recipes in in this book. Do you have personal favorites? Well, my personal favorites change. Like my love of Christy favorites all changes as well. Mm -hmm. Um, There's, there's recipes I'm really proud of because they're so old and interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, recipes I'm proud of because I was so clever to have thought of that. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, so it really mixes it up. One of the, one of the ones I'm, I'm most proud of, I think though, is, um, one called Windsor stew. Mm -hmm. And I I quite like this because it was a favorite of early Kings. George is the third and fourth, I think in England. Mm -hmm. And, they lived in Windsor, and so this stew or soup was made of things that are from Windsor. Mm. So lamb and beef and parsnips and carrots and potatoes, like very root vegetable and, and you know, and the animals you saw on the land. Mm-hmm. So I really liked that whole idea, but it fell completely out of favor. Apparently, Victoria did not like it. Oh, no. <laughs> So it fell out of favor, and by the time of the Second World War, it was just reduced to, like, brown soup. Mm. And, you know, one of those sort of British war things. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, and looking at so I looked it up. It was mentioned in one of the Christie books, and so I started looking it up. I was quite curious about this brown, icky soup, which had such a glorious name as Mm -hmm. Windsor Soup. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, it's a really great recipe. I made it for my family, and I took bowls of it and containers to everybody I knew and said, what do you think of this? And they all thought it was the best soup stew they've ever had. I love that. Did you make all the recipes? Is that kind of your process? Yes. Yes. And I had uh, three other women that also helped. Mm -hmm. And that was to ensure that, you know, I wasn't, like, blindly looking at, 
you know, it's saying two cups in the recipe, but my head knows it's only one mm -hmm. sip. I just mm -hmm. do the one no matter what the recipe said. Mm -hmm. So I had other friends try that as well. Mm -hmm. And other times I would source a recipe and say, you try it first and then let me see if I can try it, particularly with the baking stuff because I'm not as good a baker mm -hmm. as some of them were. Sure. And uh, so, yeah, so three other women mostly. And then, of course, friends and family had to taste and try numerous things <laughs> over the years. Or, yeah, you know, would do one dish for me and stuff. It's a lot, 66 dishes. It's a, it's a and, lot of books. It's a lot of recipes, yes. And we've thrown some out. So I'm going to say we were closer to about 80 recipes mm -hmm. Wow. that we've gone through. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Tell me about the ones you had to throw out. Um, pita bread. Hmm. What? I was trying to make pita bread the way that they would have made it in the ancient times without yeast. Mm. Yeah. It just it just really didn't work. It was very chewy. The mm -hmm. ladies, I like to say, there's a group of ladies that know why there's no pita bread in there. <laughs> <laughs> and which, which book um, was that associated with? Um... Murder in Mesopotamia. Right, because that's... It's a lovely scene where the nurse is out talking to the head archaeologist, and he makes her see the whole communal mm -hmm. way of life and the communal um, hearth in the middle of the town where everybody came to bake their own breads daily. Right, I, th I think, is that her... That's her historical mystery. Or no, no, that's the ancient Egypt one. This is just an archaeologist. This is I see, I see. based on some of her travels, certainly with Max. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it can be said that some of those characters were drawn directly from life. Sure. But, um, which is which is so interesting, because she did, she traveled a lot. And um, the recipes in the book really reflect that these are not just British recipes, though the British recipes are amazing, but they're it's really sort of a global collection, because she was a, I a did try to do that match match things to where where we were happening. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, that's what Christy does with the food. She talks about the food in the era and mm -hmm. in the time, mm -hmm. and the place where it's being eaten. Mm -hmm. And the Caribbean mystery is a very good one for mm -hmm. that one. Because I like it for two reasons. One, there's a marvelous scene where um, Michael, the uh, proprietor of the hotel, is trying to talk uh, Miss Marple into having a nice bread pudding. Mm. And she's like, no, I'm in the Caribbean. I'm having passion fruit Sunday, you uh -huh. mini. And, you know, off with him. So mm -hmm. it not only shows you where we are but it also shows you the spunk of miss marble mm -hmm. no absolutely um so our podcast is called tetonic and toxin and um you know you have a, i think a recipe for a, in the book for a perfect cup of tea also a couple perfect cups of coffee yes. and in addition to that which which we both love as coffee and tea drinkers and, and lovers but also i she had experience with poisons and so there's this other element to her her like the flip side or the you know the other side of the food and drink which it, it can be <laughs> the 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 food and drink that you know poirot loves because he's a gourmand and then it can also be the food and drink that that kills so yeah, t tell me yeah talk about this a little bit because food and drink in one respect or another really play a big role in in her books they do, they do, and um, 
I did the podcast with All About Agatha, mm. and Kemper, Kemper and I broke it mm -hmm. into the top 10 based on how she used it. Mm -hmm. And um, what I broke down surprised him because the one that should have been at the top, which is probably Murder in Three Acts, mm. because three people die from poison right. in their food. <laughs> Wow. So that really should have won, but a couple of there's something else won because it was just more foodie. <laughs> but yeah, that that one always comes to mind. Three act tragedy where the the poor clergyman meets his end from a poison cocktail. Mm -hmm. And then the doctor meets his end from poison in his um whiskey. Mm. And then poor Mrs. Rushdeberger dies from eating a poison chocolate. Oh. <laughs> so she got her full fill of uh, poison out in that episode, mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. But the one you started with, um, The Mysterious Murder at Styles, mm -hmm. um, they spent a whole lot of time trying to figure out whether the poison was in the coffee yes. or mm -hmm. the cocoa or the hot milk mm -hmm. or any of these other things that she was having in the evening and it's very unclear mm -hmm. where that poison you know came from mm -hmm. so she plays with it a bit she makes it a bit of a mystery yeah i was interested too because like the steak you had the multiple coffee um recipes is that having to do with how coffee changed over the years or how they made it i think the first one was about um, how drip coffee was a new thing rather than a percolator. Well, the percolator had just been really invented, even though there wasn't a large amount of um, electricity. But in fact, it was the percolator uh, that goes on top of your stove. Mm -hmm. And and the percolation is the, the up and coming. So this is the new invention. So this is how, you know, your upper class folks are now having their coffee. Mm -hmm circulated <laughs> whereas the contrast i was i was drawing was to the europeans that were still using the um, you know soak the beans and and drip it out mm -hmm. and what's so interesting about that is if you read the very last one mm -hmm. back at styles they're now using a very fancy percolator and the europeans are still using a very fancy drip Oh, that's funny. So, in fact, it's actually what goes around comes around. Do you have a favorite way? I to think make the coffee? worst time for coffee was probably in the six in the seventies when mm -hmm. it was, you know, Mister Joe's coffee or <laughs> Joe Namath's coffee machine or something. But the resurgence of beans and all of that stuff really um, brought it back to the same good coffee that Hoyro mm -hmm. was having yeah. back in in the teens and the twenties. How do you make your coffee? Um, I go to the corner shop <laughs> in the city, and mm. he makes the most delightful oat latte. Mm. So nice. when I have coffee on the weekends, that's what I do. Nice. But other than that, I use that French press. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I had some uh, some additional questions too. One of the things that interested me so you're in canada mm -hmm. um a lot of these recipes are british a lot of your audience is american and there's a lot of different methodologies in there is for example i cannot go to the store and buy pudding rice 
or no. camp coffee or things like that. Are, do you have those available where you're at or how did no, how do you No, and I tried these? to put in what would be the normal thing. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that, that is. One of my favorite ones though for that interesting bit is the coffee cake. Mm-hmm. Yes, I looked at that too, where they put coffee in the cake. That's right. A coffee cake in Britain is simply cake that tastes like coffee. Oh. It's flavored coffee cake, mm-hmm. like you'd mm-hmm. have strawberry or chocolate or something. Sure. Whereas in North America, a coffee cake is a certain kind of cake that's served with coffee, yes. kind of a bit crumbly, maybe mm-hmm. some fruit, a little cinnamon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely. You're talking about two different things. Mm-hmm. Um so the big issue comes with the creams and the milks. Yes. Yeah, so, so I've tried one. to put in there what can be a substitute and mm-hmm. stuff. And um, yeah, other stuff I don't know. Give it a go. <laughs> because, because Agatha Christie had a love of cream. I oh, think you yeah. say in the books oh, since yeah. age 11 or some, some very young age. We share that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> she would um, have a cup of cream. That mm-hmm. was her thing. Mm-hmm. Like... Her big treat was that it was a cup of cream. Now, she did grow up in Devon, which is famous for their cream mm-hmm. teas. And, and when she grew up, her family was quite wealthy when she was young. And so there was like tables and tables of great food. Mm-hmm. So this kind of taste for rich food, it comes by naturally. Mm-hmm. But her whole life, she never drank alcohol. She would always celebrate with a cup of cream. So <laughs> everyone else would be having champagne or great red wines mm-hmm. or whatever it was, and she'd have a nice cup of cream. Wow. And that's like right up to the day she died, I think, because I know for her 80th birthday party, her cup of cream was on the menu. So <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Yep. I that's a lady that. who loved her cream. And can I tell you my other favorite cream story? Yes. Please. When she was living in um, Baghdad, she on the on the dig. Mm-hmm. She wanted some cream. Well, she got her man in the kitchen to go out and milk the buffalo for buffalo milk. Wow! And wow. buffalo cream, which she made. Yeah, she made into cream and made profiteroles for dinner. Oh, lovely! I I <laughs> love pl- profiteroles. Yeah, I don't think I've had one. But would you have thought of milk in a buffalo? No, never. Um, so. To be fair, I would also not think of milking a cow. <laughs> I like them delivered on a little plate at a restaurant. So, I get that. Yeah. But, you know, I think the milking the cow is more of a thing we could think of. Buffalo, mm-hmm. it just seems like, wait a minute, aren't they just roaming the range? I mean, how do you milk a buffalo? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're And then you think giant. of those massive water buffaloes. Mm-hmm in the middle east and yeah wa- I, I just the picture of it all is just too much i know me. i wish we had a picture of it i know that's amazing. <laughs> I know. so I, I think profiterole is like a um it's a tiny wrap or a sort of like a little crepe almost but it's crispy and then has the yeah. cream filling inside does that sound correct yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's kind of italian mm-hmm. you know the leave the guns take the cannolis <laughs> Very close. Uh-huh. Very close. Uh-huh. Nice. Now, you're a cook yourself, and you see um, your mother and grandmother were also, were they professional or just wonderful home cooks? No, no we're just all home cooks. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, you know, I first 
enjoyed big family dinners at my grandmother's house and you know what it looked like with plates and plates everywhere and lots and lots of food and mm -hmm. it was always good hearty food my mother was a bit more you know well I, it was the 60s and the 70s so she was you know Ooh. trying spaghetti and you know things from the galloping gourmet <laughs> on mm -hmm. tv and yeah things like that so we had a much more uh, exotic food there but we just all really loved food you know and her parents loved good food mm -hmm. and it's just always the way it was i grew up feeding people you know i spent most of my 20s feeding my friends and feeding the people i worked with and yeah i just like to cook i like good food and i really like the camaraderie of feeding your your people mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's important to me yeah, I love that. And, and I agree with that as well. I was making some of your recipes from the book to try out, um, specifically the ones that we've read. Um, so and then some others that just intrigued me. But, mm -hmm. um, Were you amazed on how easy um, uh, Oysters Rockefeller was? Well, all except for shucking the oysters. <laughs> I was like, man, after we get these shucked, then it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually, yeah, I wanted to ask you about the oysters. Rock, are you really good at shucking oysters? Do you do that a lot? Yes. Okay. Yes. We, we, she I love, here. I love oysters. My daughter loves oysters. We have little shucking, but we took a course in shucking. <laughs> oh, we wow. have a little wooden thing. We have great knives. Mm -hmm. We have the good towel. Mm -hmm. We can both shuck. That's awesome. That's what I'm doing for my birthday this week. I'm going to buy myself two dozen oysters and just come home and shuck them and eat them. Lovely. That's awesome. Yeah, I love oysters, yeah. but I'd never shut. That was actually our first time making them at home. And so we're uh, Googling videos and trying <laughs> to get a knife set on Amazon and like, ah, how do I? This oyster is crumbling. Well, mm -hmm. I, my daughter does have stitches in one hand from an early venture. Oh, yeah. <laughs> A, a forever memory. <laughs> a forever memory yeah, of, yeah. of oysters, yeah. But anyway, my point was how easy it was. Mm -hmm. I've always thought that was a difficult dish, and mm -hmm. I was so shocked by, oh, this is a cinch. Why don't people do this all the time? <laughs> because you can go to your fish store and ask for half a dozen shocked oysters, wow. and they will do that. Okay. Oh, really? Our grocery store yeah. didn't shuck them for us. Mm. <laughs> so. well, time for a new grocery store. I guess. I'd say. How, how did you choose Oysters Rockefeller for the Murder on the Orient Express the chapter? Um, when I reread that one looking for food references, there really wasn't a, a much. Mm -hmm. There was only a description of the type of food that was being served. Mm -hmm. And so it was the finest cheeses from Ireland or, or France and the finest smoked salmon from Ireland or Scotland or something. But the, the whole thing was the best of the best of the best. And they didn't really have specific, and I'm thinking, well, you know, lobsters, always. Mm -hmm. I had originally started with caviar, mm -hmm. but there's really not much to caviar, mm -hmm. how to serve it maybe. But mm -hmm. And then I started to think, well, I'm sure that the richest American would have influenced, mm -hmm. you know, these high totem chefs on the most prestigious um railway car of europe yes. so it's a fit 
Mm-hmm. Oysters Rockefeller it was. And then when I found out how easy it was, it wasn't a three-page recipe. I was delighted. So that's why it's there. So it's it's making this recipe more accessible once somebody... It, it, so long as they can shuck the oyster or get their grocery <laughs> so store to shuck them. Yeah. Oyster or, or you got the equipment. Mm-hmm. It's really... And, you know, so many people go, oh, I'm not sure I like raw oysters. Mm. Okay, well, let me Rockefeller them. Uh-huh. And, yeah. They're really lovely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were good. We just finished them off uh, last night. So I can attest to that. Um, you also said you found, not, maybe not for this recipe, but for some recipes, you looked up historic menus and things like that. Tell, tell us about Very some of that. Very much in the 20s and the 30s, which I don't have as much cookbooks. I have a lot of cookbooks that start around the 40s, right? So I wasn't really too sure what home cooks. And, and don't forget, in that time, you're still talking about mm-hmm. servants and class structure and stuff like that. So what I did was I started to find on the Internet menus mm. from cruises mm. and uh, train mm-hmm. cruising things and hotels and And from all over the world. So you could really get an eye on what, you know, and they were mostly, you know, first class and second class menus as well. So you could really see what people were eating. So then I would try to interpose that on whatever I was doing. A really good example of this is Peril at End House, where she has this wonderful big meal for all these people to support the sailing uh, Coes Week. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, I'm like, well, what does a poor a woman who's actually poor but have this great big house mm-hmm. on in Cornwall? What is she going to be serving for dinner mm-hmm. in like the twenties? So uh, you know, I had to look around and found how it would be set up, and that's where I got most of those from. And and a thing I found was mm-hmm. so uh, very odd: olives and celery were served as the first course on almost every one of those menus. Really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> olives and celery. I, I couldn't figure like olives, okay. Celery with, you know, something else, okay. Hmm. But no, it was olives and celery. Wow. And those are two foods that people either from my experience love or hate. <laughs> I know. Yeah. But they were the number one hors d'oeuvre on all those train rides and all those cruises. Interesting. Yeah, they're I often garnished by that. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That is. What was your favorite um, historical sort of recipe or menu that you looked up? Well, I think it was finding a really good recipe for seed cake, which is Miss Marple's favorite from her youth Mm. in um, Bertram's Hotel. Mm -hmm. So I tried a couple of different seed cakes, and I don't mind saying I really... I, I couldn't find aniseed, so I got mm. aniseed stars, and I sat for almost four hours picking the seeds out of the aniseed oh, stars. Wow. Oh my I won't do that again. Yeah. <laughs> I actually found somewhere, and I looked at it, and I said, oh, my God, a whole bag of them? <laughs> so remember to do that. Mm-hmm. But that was fun because that was a very old Victorian, pre-Victorian cake that was really popular and when brits do cake they don't just do cake that's you know got a bunch of frosting on it they do cake that's more like you know 
like we would have a piece of maybe sponge cake or, or, or really nice cookies. <laughs> Had really lovely cookies with some ice cream. That's a nice dessert. Brits did cake in the same way. <laughs> but they also did cake that, you know, people would take a hunk, put butter on it, and, and eat it like it was a sandwich as well. <laughs> so cake did a lot of work. <laughs> so this seed cake, which was at the same time not that sweet, but really, yeah, quite lovely. Mm-hmm. Really enjoyed that. That was quite a surprise. Mm-hmm. Enjoyed yeah. it a lot. I ended up making the uh, little castle puddings. Yes. Those well, were- there's the one you asked me of things that got thrown out. That's our third little castle pudding. Oh, recipe. tell me about that. <laughs> well, we started with one and they just made these little rock hard castles. Mm. We just couldn't figure out what was wrong. Everything looked right. And so then the next one wasn't quite as rock hard, but it just, we ended up taking a big syringe and trying to shoot the um, <laughs> jam into it to soften it up. It just wasn't. Anyway, I finally said to heck with it. And I went back to the drawing board and found a, a, a whole other version of it that I we then made and it was so delightful we said yay we got it (laughs) (laughs) that was a bit of a tricky one again an older cake Mm -hmm. so there's not many you know new versions of it Mm -hmm. but that's what i mean by like the sort of cake pudding thing that the brits do and they do they do quite well because did you like it oh we loved it even my four-year-old liked it um but that yeah it had like it's not too sweet but it has the creme fraiche on top and then marmalade as well. Yeah. And that yeah. turned out to be delicious mm-hmm. on it. Yeah. But then that sweet and sounds sour. Delicious. Yeah. It was really good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I liked it a lot. Um, I'm reading another cookbook right now on historical puddings. <laughs> and so ah. I was like, well, that'll be a cool crossover. Mm-hmm. And you said you've and, got to... And, and- when you say pudding in Britain, it could be anything. It means so, anything. They, I, you know, toad in the hole is a pudding. It is. Orchard puddings are puddings. And yet, you know, you could get a chocolate mousse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Steak and kidney pie is a pudding. So, exactly. <laughs> dumplings are pudding. Yeah, they uh, they use that word a lot. Mm-hmm. As they do cake. So it's almost like they have cake, they have pudding, and they have roast. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> The three components of any meal. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And Sarah, you um, also, I think, experimented with vegetable marrow. Oh, yeah. So uh, as our listeners know, when there is food in a book, I inevitably bring it up in the podcast because I have this interest and obsession. And so um, in the murder of Roger Ackroyd, Poirot is growing vegetable marrows which we don't have here in the States. Yeah. I was like, what is... And tell, tell me what you found. I, From my Googling, um, it sounded like it was just a zucchini that grew extra large. Is it just a large zucchini or is it kind of a different relative of the zucchini? Yeah, it's an... It's an- It's really an overgrown zucchini. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you grown them? What is the secret to a marrow 
I know the book uses I zucchini. I personally have not grown them. I've grown zucchinis, and oh my god, they're crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they just keep growing. Mm-hmm. No, this is one where I relied on my um, British friend who lives in the Netherlands, and she did get her hands on a true marrow. Oh, really? Which it just looks like an overgrown um, zucchini. And they are di- so they are you're, difficult. You're good to use the zucchini. Yeah, <laughs> they they are difficult to grow, is my understanding. Um, I think it's just really the temperature wise mm. and the way it works. They're they're just well known in Britain. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I will say, I don't know why we probably don't grow them here because they're fairly tasteless. <laughs> <laughs> they, make, they make zucchini yeah. tasty. Well, so in the murder of Roger Ackroyd, which is where yes. Poirot has uh, retired to a small village and he is growing vegetable marrows and flinging them over the fence. They were certainly difficult for him to grow, I will say. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there must be something to get right. Ra- Usually when you let a vegetable grow too long, you don't want to eat it because it does <laughs> become tough. It mm-hmm. loses its flavor. Mm-hmm. Like those pumpkins they grow, you know, the 2,000 pound pumpkin. Yes. I mean, what are you doing with that? Yeah, you're just looking at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You're not growing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'm not really sure what the point of that was. And I don't know why Mrs. Christie had him retire to grow marrows. Of all I things. I mean, it just seems like an incredibly ridiculous thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> retire to grow roses, maybe. Yeah. But marrows? <laughs> like the least <laughs> likely thing? Mm-hmm. Just seems very funny. Yes. But that was a very traditional recipe, that mm-hmm. stuffed marrow. Mm-hmm. absolutely yeah. every Brit I know had that as a kid mm-hmm. I even looked it up for the episode in uh, like BBC's best marrow recipes and stuffed marrows was on there so I was like yeah. yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah I made that this week and it was very tasty as well I enjoyed mm-hmm. that yeah. <laughs> well, my friend who ended up um, mastering that recipe and sending it back to me she, her vegetarian daughter had a taste of it and thought it was fine. Mm-hmm. So even with the meat in it, high praise. <laughs> it's stuffed with beef. I know yeah, exactly. it, it looks delicious. I saw the recipe. I have not tasted the recipe, but it looks delicious. Yeah. 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 I think I, I yeah, mm-hmm. it worked out pretty well. Mine were smaller because I used smaller mm-hmm. zucchinis, mm-hmm. but, um, so I used like four or five of them. And just scraped out the centers and lined them that way. Mm-hmm. And so then it makes more like a one per person rather mm-hmm. than the slices that you have to do with the marrow. But mm-hmm. yeah, no, it's it's not a bad little recipe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we're coming up on Halloween and there's a whole Halloween recipe um, or, or menu yes. in the book. So can you talk about the Halloween menu? Well, I think I started off with the Jolly Roger cocktail because mm-hmm. pirates just go with Halloween. Mm-hmm. I, they're a Halloween fixture. And so that's from um, Evil evil Under the Sun. I was going to say Evil Island, but no, it's <laughs> Evil Under the Sun. Mm-hmm. And the Jolly Roger Hotel, which mm-hmm. is actually a real hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I thought that was a good start. And then we moved on to the jack-o'-lantern eggs, mm-hmm. which are really just hard-boiled eggs that I fancied up by mm-hmm. making the, the yolks orange. Mm-hmm. And then we have a little bit of a 
you know, green onion top to mm -hmm. put the little head on it. And, and then just black food coloring is better than trying to make anything else yourself <laughs> and just doing the little, the little dots there. So mm -hmm. yeah, that was lots of fun. Mm -hmm. Then we chose, I chose, um, partridge roast partridge for the meal mm -hmm. i felt this is somewhere between you know the turkeys of thanksgiving and you know the chicken of the summer <laughs> they were traditionally killed at this time of the year um late september october mm -hmm. um yeah it just it just felt right mm -hmm. pheasants Kind of an unusual and different thing yes and then of course we have boiled potatoes from one of the scariest mysteries she wrote um and then there were none and then there were none mm -hmm. um what else do we have in there oh and then of course the to die for chocolate cake ah yes yes which is from a murder is announced mm -hmm. now the true story on that one the list of ingredients that are in there, Jane Asher of British fame made that cake and copyrighted that cake. Mm -hmm. And so I could not use that cake. No. So I developed a different to die for chocolate cake. Mine sort of replaces the raisins with espresso. Oh, I think that's a pretty Just good kind trade. of a more fun thing <laughs> for chocolate. I didn't know you could <laughs> copyright a recipe, actually. That's nice no. to me. It's, it's, she's made it sort of, you can't really, but she's kind of made it very famously mm -hmm. hers and stuff. So when I thought about, I just didn't want to do, this is Jane Asher's cake, mm -hmm. you know? So we all got our heads together, the cake wrecked cake people and I mm -hmm. and decided that this version of, of the chocolate was also to die for. Right. And so, and, yeah. So next year. Jane's husband says so. <laughs> <laughs> next year we're going to be reading and then there were none and um your forward to this particular recipe the potatoes um mm -hmm. you you talk a little bit about how it's sort of a bridge between you know the the book starts out with these really fancy dishes and there are two servants serving them various events uh transpire and by the end of the but by nearing the end of the story, they're eating out of tins. And so this, these potatoes are sort of the bridge between we're scrambling to find anything to eat and it's still kind of a lovely meal. Can you talk a little bit about these potatoes? Yeah, well, that's what I figured because, you know, the first in, in the first meal, those potatoes were probably turiend or scalloped mm. or something lovely like that, mm -hmm. right? And in the end they're cold in a can. Mm -hmm. So somewhere in the middle, somebody took some fresh potatoes and just boiled them. Mm -hmm. They didn't do anything else. They just mm -hmm. boiled them. Mm -hmm. So that's how I kind of felt. <laughs> when you get to murder number five or six, maybe that's how <laughs> you're starting to feel. Yeah. All right, I'll just put them in the pot, but I'm not doing anything else. Uh -huh. yeah. So that's kind of why I, I, I put them there. I really thought about that one for a bit and i don't know why boiled potatoes just came into my head as mm -hmm. the perfect bridge between standing in the kitchen eating spam and sitting at a table with 12 guests being served mm -hmm. you know a glorious meal mm -hmm. <laughs> well and i love you for each recipe you kind of pulled a little quote from the book which yes. i loved and i that one particularly sticks out in my head because they talk about cold ham cold tongue and boiled potatoes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I went to, of course, cold tongue. 
(laughs) Is that one that's just too far afield for a modern cook? Is tongue too hard to get a hold of? I've never had it, but it's one of those things where I'm curious. Because I've read about a lot of cold um, tongue. It's still going to be served in England. I mean, they still had black pudding and Mm -hmm. things like that, which my mother was just bragging that she found some tripe. At her butchers the other day, and it's enough for three meals. So I took it home and I cut it off. Mm. And yeah, over the moon. I did not do tripe. I actually had to <laughs> beg my mother to do the kidney recipes because mm. nobody else wanted to do them. Really? But I must say, the canapé Diane, which is a kidney wrapped in bacon. Mm-hmm. As long as I didn't tell my nieces and nephews what it was, they loved it. <laughs> yeah, great. Good to know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So there's that. So, yeah, tongue was tongue, head cheese. Those are probably a step too far for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I did venture into kidneys mm-hmm. a little bit, <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. Some of the older foods are a bit more. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the um, this thing, a uh, pocket full of rye. Yeah. So this one I argued with my um, editor for some time because I just wanted to put in the story of what a real blackbird pie was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he wanted a recipe. (laughs) So it's kind of both in there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so the real story of the blackbird pie was in in medieval years in the big, huge banquet rooms. They would wheel in this oversized pie that was filled with live birds. Live and then they birds. would peel the top back and the birds would release and they would sing. Oh. It was like <laughs> part of the show. It wasn't really part of the meal. Mm-hmm. It was part of the show. Oh, cool. But he insisted we have a recipe. So then I had to go back to the blackboard, a drawing board, Google board, everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, did they ever cook blackbirds in a pie? And, well, turns out they did. And uh, maybe only up to about the 1830s or so. After Mm -hmm. that, it was illegal to kill songbirds. But up till then, they absolutely did make these pies with uh, birds in them. So I got that recipe, and I did not use songbirds. I used (laughs) Cornish hens, which are about the same size. Mm -hmm. I could have used the the partridges, actually. But, um, yeah, we used Cornish hens, and it, it, it's a lovely pie. It's You can tell it's old, mm. and, you know, probably not going to show up on any menu new and revised by Jamie Oliver. Or <laughs> but it's an interesting trip into what these pies originally were mm-hmm. like before sort of the chicken pot pie mm-hmm. right. became the, the, the roost. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it could revive. I've been seeing a rabbit coming back. I'm a huge rabbit fan. So I've been seeing rabbit pies and other hmm. sorts of dishes like that starting to be revived. Yeah, well, game animals are certainly coming back. So who knows? Mm-hmm. You have a recipe. If your husband goes out and brings back a few odd birds, you have a recipe. We're, work- <laughs> we're working on that side of it. <laughs> um, so... In the foreword to your book, um, you know, we, you talk a little bit about, um, or John Curran talks a little bit about, you know, how the book 
came together and, and, and a little bit about that. So can you talk a little bit about the dinner where you met him? Yes. Well, um, in Torquay, mm-hmm. uh, which is on the south coast of Devon, mm-hmm. uh, England, right on the water there. And um, so it's about, it's a week-long festival. And it's had a lot of different inter- iterations, but John has been going there for 20 years. Mm-hmm. I've only been going there for like three or four. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first time I went, and I went on my own and just booked a hotel room and said, I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. It's like a dream of mine. Yeah. And... Um, so I booked in for the dinner at Greenway House, mm-hmm. which is Agatha Christie's summer home that mm-hmm. she bought mm-hmm. and um, has turned since turned over to the National Trust. Mm-hmm. So the National Trust puts on his dinner. It's for about 20 people and, in, and it's in the proper dining room and there's a speaker and John is John is one of the speakers. So I first met him there, and I know I was so nervous, and I'd I'd written most of the draft of this book, and so I'm that. (laughs) (laughs) So he thought I was a bar. Um, But, you know, we became pretty good friends. Mm -hmm. And so then when I came back to the the festival and said, I sold it, you know, and and, uh, then I just stalked him until he agreed to write the (laughs) forward. Um, the Which thing, he did. The thing I love lovely. about this house, um, there's a lot mm. of things I love about it, but there's this um, sideboard that Agatha Christie had where she kept the foods warm. So her guests had the ultimate level of food comfort. They could wake up whenever they wanted to. They could stroll yep. down and and take whatever foods they wanted and they were warm ready for them whatever hour they they chose to have them and i love this idea it's sort of like the ultimate in comfort oh yeah it's it's that english breakfast just served however you want Mm -hmm. and there's a lovely scene in um dead man's folly about that too Mm -hmm. where all the guests come down and they all have different bits Mm -hmm. you know like the lady of the house just has coffee and toast, but there's an architect staying there and he just has cold ham. Not that's why. <laughs> but, um, you know, Mrs. Brewster has a, has a smaller helping of everything. And then mm. of course, Sir George has one of everything. Mm-hmm. And the same issue then in, um, is it the secret of chimney? The secret of chimneys mm-hmm. where Lord Caterham looks at it all and goes, Oh, can I have a boiled egg? <laughs> so that just kind of tells you a lot about him, too. Mm-hmm. So he's looking, there's pheasant, there's everything mm-hmm. out there, everything you could think of. Mm-hmm. And could I have a boiled egg? Mm, interesting. Yeah. So I hadn't thought about food in this way, particularly, but like as sort of a window into into character, into who they Absolutely. are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. There's um, a wonderful scene in the hollow. There's two scenes in the hollow that show this perfectly. One is um, Gerda trying to decide what to do. It's lunchtime. Here's the kids. We're sitting at the table. And my husband, John, is not down from his surgery. Does she send the roast back? Because 
goes and it sits here, it'll get cold. But what if she sends it back and then he arrives and then he's going to be angry because he has to wait for it. Mm -hmm. But if I leave it here, then he's going to be angry because it's cold. And she goes through this whole thing in her mind and you can tell that this is just a, an indecisive rabbit of a woman. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> it tells you a lot about Gerda. Yeah. On the other hand, Lady Angatel, uh, you know, one of her luncheon guests has been murdered. And first and foremost is on her mind is, well, we were having ducks for lunch. We can't have ducks for lunch. <laughs> and then she's so grateful that the cook makes caramel pudding because cook knows it's not our favorite and you can't have your favorite pudding when one of your guests has been murdered it's <laughs> <laughs> too much too celebratory Just, so you know everything you need to know about lady angatel in mm -hmm. that little description mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so yeah these kind of things and they're throughout all the books she does this really really well mm -hmm. that's awesome you said you've been able to do some uh cooking shows with this book too tell us about where you've been cooking with it well i um i cooked with one man in california now he had the recipe and he changed it up a little bit and i talked to him while he made it mm -hmm. and uh that was really quite mm -hmm. interesting um then there was another one very similar a different different cook different um a different kitchen, can't remember. But I myself am doing the 90 Second Why um, has a series of web classes, I guess. Maybe? Okay. Cool. So I'm doing English tea with Agatha Christie. Ah. So it's marvel. So we're gonna do some tea sandwiches mm -hmm. and the proper way to make black tea and the proper way to make green tea. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And yeah, then I know fun. I know we're reaching our time, but I just wanted to ask one more question. Um, and listeners, we will get uh, Karen for a second episode, but it'll be a little bit different than this one. But cooking wise, do you have any favorite cooks or cookbooks, past or present, current or historical, that really speak to you? Well, I'm a great lover of Delia Smith. Okay. She's a British, a British one, and I do love hers. Um, I like Otto Lange, the sort of new hit, hit guy. He has lots of fun recipes. Um, honestly, mostly I just troll my mother's recipes to figure out how I can change them and make them up and make them different. And mostly inspired by you know something I see or read or somewhere and I'll go, Oh, I should try something like that. Mm. Nice. But if I'm going to actually follow a recipe, I go to, um, the other one is the other, the Italian woman. Um, I want to say Nicola Lawson, but that's not it. Right? Is mm. it? I don't know. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> it'll anyway, come. It'll there's come a, to, there's, yeah a couple of Italian ones I like. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I've actually been following and I can't, I really can't remember her name, but she's the first Italian cook to introduce some um, flavorful dishes into the British culture in, mm. in like right after world war two. Mm -hmm. So she's the one that first started teaching them how to make spaghetti bolognese and, and things like that. So yeah, I have a bunch of her recipes that I've I've tried, which is fun. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, that is fascinating. Mm -hmm. 
Well, do you have any more books in the work? This one took 10 years. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I've been talking to my publisher about it. I think so. I think I might do another one. Sort of more, more Christie. Not really sure what angle. Mm-hmm. Maybe more from the characters' points of views. Oh, rather than yeah, rather than going chronologically, going you know breakfast, lunch, and dinner, uh-huh. and how they changed over the years, oh, kind of thing. I yeah, love that. You've got so much material. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you could look. Well, that's it. it because there's 66 books and 140 short stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 30 plays. I mean, there's there's just a lot of stuff. You can do a lot with Christy. She was yeah. very prolific. No shortage of material. No. Mm-hmm. No, it's great. Awesome. Well, we've loved having you on. And, and listeners, uh, listen for the next episode. We'll get to talk to Karen a little bit more yeah. um, about her book and especially about her love of Agatha Christie. Yeah. Th- thank you so much. This has been such an interesting conversation. And uh, listeners, you can find out more information about uh, this interview, about all of the books that we're reading, about the other podcast episodes at tetonicandtoxin.com or on Facebook and Instagram at Tetonic and Toxin. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And thank you, Karen. We look forward to having a second conversation with you. Uh, Karen, where can our listeners find you and your book at? Well, I do have a small Instagram called Recipes for Murder, um, but you can get my book on any of the large booksellers. I'll have it online, but best you go to your favorite bookstore and say, can you order this for me? (laughs) Because then that'll bring it in and your neighbors might get to read it too. I love it. Awesome. Thanks so much, Karen. And it's a great gift book. Mm -hmm. All right. Christmas season starting. For the mystery mystery lovers in your life, this is a, a phenomenal book. This is yeah. it, yeah. Yeah. All right, until then, everyone, please stay mysterious. 